Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Jordan Nasser earned his BA at Middlebury College in 2007. An artist born in New York, New York, his work has been featured in solo and group exhibitions globally at institutions including the Whitney Museum of American Art, Brick in Brooklyn, the Museum of Arts and Design in New York, Abrams Art Center in New York, the Katona Museum of Art in Katona, New York, Anat Ebge in Los Angeles, Evelyn Yard in London, Exile Gallery in Berlin, and the Third Line in Dubai. Jordan was the subject of two institutional solo presentations in 2019, Jordan Nasser Between Sky and Earth at Art at Bainbridge at Princeton University Art Museum, and The Sea Beneath Our Eyes at the Center for Contemporary Art in Tel Aviv. Jordan's work is currently on view at the exhibition Making, Knowing, Craft, and Art, 1950-2019 at the Whitney Museum of American Art. We Do Not Dream Alone in New York at the Asia Society Triennial, and his current show at James Cohen Gallery on the Lower East Side, entitled I Cut the Sky in Two, which is on view until November 21st. He has a solo exhibition at K-Mac Museum in Louisville, Kentucky that opens this winter. Jordan and I spoke about growing up in New York City, traveling and its impact on work, his new glass pieces, Arab music, early Fiona Apple, and much more. Here's our conversation. around the corner from my studio also so nice. <laughs> it's not like That's... the craziest thing but um but I've been working on these glass pieces and and make there's some in the show that's up right now but then I'm making more for next month for another show so I just like I'm back there like working glass um but how, how did the glass thing start um basically in kind of a long story but when when I was in Palestine I found I, I was visiting different craft places working on a show that I did last year um different artisans and craft people from all over Palestine and Israel or not necessarily even from but like that are in Palestine and Israel now and um in the glass workshop I came across this like type of beaded thing they make like it's like on a metal structure it's kind of like a sconce but it doesn't have a light in it and it's just like decorated decorative for the wall um in hebron at at one of the old glass factories and just kind of was like i want to make pieces with these beads and so you know before covid i was planning on going to palestine and working with those glass people but obviously that wasn't possible so I ended up learning how to do them 
I mean, it was a process where first I was looking for places in the New York area to make those beads for me in a variety of colors, but then that it became obvious that that was going to be like really expensive and actually just take way too long for them to fulfill the orders and whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up learning how to do it at one of these glass um, workshops, uh, which is also like a couple blocks from my house. and have been doing like two to four days a week there since like June um just making beads because each sculpture has like upwards of a thousand beads on it um so and each one is like handmade a lot like one at a time so it's just been a new part of the practice now (laughs) yeah (laughs) is the uh is the shape of it mimicking kind of the shape that you saw when you were first inspired by it? No, actually, that's like one of the major things I changed. So basically, the shape of the one that I got from Palestine is a, like, of the final beaded metal structure, that shape. Uh, the original one is kind of like a quarter of a sphere. Can you picture that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like round, but then rounded at the bottom. Um and I have done completely different shapes, like flattened them out, made them so that you, cause basically, cause with colors, I do like a landscape across it. Yeah. Um, so that's like the whole idea is like applying my usual visuals, but to like a completely different medium, whatever. Um, and cause I've only seen them in Palestine in single colors, like the whole thing, one color. Yeah. But yeah, it's been it's been cool. It's been really fun to learn a new craft, like a completely new craft. Um, and it's obviously very different from embroidery, but it's also like shares a lot of the repetitive, like <laughs> do this a thousand times right. <laughs> kind of method of making things. Um, so it kind of makes sense. Does for it me does also. it also structurally relate to the grid as well? It's it's. It's not a grid. It's more of like a beehive. It's okay. like a diagonal yeah. grid, right. you know, where like the two beads below one sits sits on top of like the kind of space between two and so on. Yeah. Um, but that being said, yeah, there still is like a structure that I that that I follow. Right. Um, and that also just like ends up giving it a more orderly, clean feeling. Like you know, the ones and that's actually something that I kind of decided to do because the original pieces from Palestine are like they just fit because the beads are all handmade so some are slightly bigger some are slightly smaller and so on the Palestinian ones they just fit beads wherever they fit they like shove them in Um, which is more like rustic and folksy but it's actually harder to do in a sense because you have to really rely on like how does this look does this look better should I add one there Whereas if you just regulate it, then you just like it's regular, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Having a plan little, makes things go a little yeah, smoother. It's, it's just a little easier, and then also just for the planning, because you know I don't want to make more beads than I need for any one part of a piece. So yeah. if I have a grid type thing where I have I know exactly how many beads is going to be on the piece in the end, and then I can sketch on it for like my composition and break it apart, break it up into like different color blocks. And then mm-hmm. count how many beads are in each color block and then decide on the colors I want and then have my to-do list at the glass studio. Like, I need 98 blue and 73 green. and a, You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, all that comes from, like, having a plan and not just going at it. Like, 
the first one I made because it was like I needed to figure out this whole process. I did just like make a bunch of beads over like a month and then sit down with a metal structure and be like, what should I put on it? But then it's, it's very like, you'll look at a section and be like, do I have enough beads for how much I want to do here? Like it's kind of, it was too stressful for me. And especially with the sky, because the sky requires a lot of beads. Obviously it's like the most of one color. Yeah. And I would just be like, nervous while I'm doing it that I'm going to run out before the sky is full. Right, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I need to figure out a way to plan this so that I don't like <laughs> not know if it's going to be enough beads. Anyway, it's been, yeah, fun. I get that. I get that with paint where I'm doing a big sky or something and I'm just hoping that I've mixed with the experience. I know how much to make of it without being wasteful. Right. But it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I mean, it's this, I mean, again, it's like the weight, like uh, obviously it's good to like, have the wasteful mind like not want to be wasteful um but like if i have five beads too little i have to like go to the glass studio like make them each one by one let them sit in the annealer overnight like it's just kind of like all such a process to make a couple more like you you don't you can't it's like a nightmare you can't do that also because if that happens multiple times in one piece where it's like last week I needed more yellow and then today I realized I need more orange and I'm like, Ugh, I have to, you know, it's just like a whole thing. Cause also the process of putting the glass works together is a whole thing where you get this copper wire. Cause the beads are like, they're kind of like a, like they almost look like a marble or something. Like they're just like a round bead. They don't have yeah. a hole. And then they have a little waist behind it and then a little like butt like other smaller round part and so you wrap a wire around the skinny waist and attach it to the metal frame with the wire um and so you know you have to kind of process like you get all this um copper wire and then you have to cut it down into like thousands of little kind of three inch pieces and so that's a whole that takes way too long and it's very boring and then, yeah, like one by one attaching them. So that's like, you know, once you're going into in that process, you don't want to stop and be like, wait, I have to go to the glass studio tomorrow because I need like seven more of these blue ones, you know? Um, it's just, yeah. So anyway, but I figured it out now and have, like, as I said, like I have like a whole to-do list where I just have like a note in my phone of like all these different numbers of how many I need of each color. And I'm just like, chugging through it this week in the glass studio like every day i'll go i'm gonna go there right after we finish this um but yeah well with process with process i feel like there's it's either something that you do that you just love to do it or something that you do because you love the results so much that you're willing to suffer through some of the you know the tedious nature of the process what is it for you I, it's definitely both. Like there, I do. I enjoy sitting and embroidering like all day. But of course, there's times where I'm like, you know, I've been doing this one color for a, like two weeks because <laughs> yeah. it's such a large area, and I'm like, oh my god, like finish that, you know? And because it is more fun and like entertaining to do like little spurts of a whole bunch of different colors because you feel like oh I finished that color finished that color yeah. finished that color it feels like it's moving whereas if you're just like doing a huge area of one color it gets very boring um 
But at the same time, there's always the excitement of like wanting the piece to get finished. So right. um, it balances out. And I think the glass is the same. It was really fun to learn um, and to work in the glass studio and new tools and new like, you know, a new process. Um, and it was definitely very novel for like a month or two. And then it started to be like, my back is hurting every day and I want to like <laughs> take a break, but I just like need to finish more beads, you know? Yeah. Um, so it turns into work in a sense, but then, and it's the same thing when I'm putting the beads on the pieces where it's like at first I'm excited, then I'm bored. Cause it's just like, wait, I have to put like 300 of these beads, the same color. Um, and, uh, it can be frustrating because the bead, you know, they're, they're solid glass and the metal structures are steel. So there's not a lot of like mushing or like squeezing that can happen. It's just like hard materials. And so sometimes it's a matter of like finding a bead that will fit among the beads around it because it's like, you need one that's a little smaller or one that has like, sometimes the back that you put like through the metal structure, uh, the back of the bead is like too fat to fit at that spot and so you need to find one that has like a skinnier like backside like, it's just like so there's these frustrating moments where you're like digging through a, a your like beads of one color trying to find like the one that will fit in this one spot even though all of them will fit in like other spots you need one for that spot and it's like being frustrating um so yeah so it's like uh it's a roller coaster but in the <laughs> end it's like fun to finish them and have them be like ready to go that's the payoff Um, right yeah and i'm really excited about how they look in in a gallery space where because you know the the thing about the beads also is that it's not just colors that you're playing with it's also transparency it's light like degrees of transparency and light yeah so they really do look best like on a white surface with a white behind it like no because if there's something behind it, it'll refract like all through the beads and kind of make the color look muddy or part of that area of color. Cause if you're like, if you're like standing behind it, you might not be blocking all of the beads, just like some of the light of some of them, like, you know, so, which is cool. Cause it's just like getting to know a new, like when we were installing the show, like I didn't really have, a distinct vision because I was like, I need, I don't know. Like I need to get to know these works, you know, and figure out like how we, sh- how they exist in a show. Um, but yeah, I am. I mean, and that the other thing about the beats that was kind of a roller coaster this summer was like, I was spending months making beads before I was able to like actually complete one of the sculptures and so it was this mystery of like is this even gonna look good or like work like i don't know but i have to like first make a thousand beads um so it was very nerve-wracking up until i started to be able to like actually execute some of them and be like and i feel like the gallery was also very like they were very supportive but i was like i'm gonna learn how to make the beads because it's like too crazy to try to get someone else to make them and they were like okay like good luck (laughs) you know what i mean like they were just like kind of crazy Um, is this gonna work (laughs) yeah and i just and and you know the whole time talking about the show is like and then there's these five sculptures and they're like they don't exist like what are you talking about right uh so it was very like stressful to be like this better work (laughs) like this these better look good um and just not being able to like 
get that answer. You have to like, I'll find out in two months from now when I actually can finish a large one, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and in that the meantime, I have to work on it like every day. Right. Um, having to wait for things like that is stressful, you know? It's like... It's, I mean, it's, it's exciting a lot of the time, but when it's like, it was my first show in New York at this gallery, that, at James Cohen Gallery that I've been represented by for a year, but I've never had a show. Mm-hmm. And so there was just like that pressure of like, I want the show to be like amazing and really make them happy that they decided to take me on, you know? So it was yeah, like that totally. kind of pressure where it was like, and we, I still kind of like, you know, it's, it remains to be seen like the, re, like what people think of these glass cultures in terms of like, whatever, like critics and art and collectors and like, whatever, you know? I mean, I think that, I mean, I really like them. I think there's been some good response, but like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to introduce, you know, I've been working with embroidery only for years and that's what people know from my work. And so like to add a completely different medium is just like, I'm curious to see how I, how it goes. Um, and you know, but that, that being said, there's also like, I think it's just a matter of tapping into, um, like there are people who are really into glass work by artists, you know, the same way that like there are people who like only collect works on paper (laughs) or something where there's like people who are in these little like niche. Um, and so I'm, I guess part of it is also just like getting tapped into the like glass world, (laughs) you know, a little bit, uh, which hopefully will continue to happen. But I've already on Instagram because I've been like posting, uh, what even just like stories of me working in the glass studio and stuff like I've made like new artist friends on Instagram who are who work with glass yeah who are kind of like welcoming me into the glass working people isn't it funny <laughs> you know? those si- those kind of silos and how they each have like their yeah. own kind of crowd because well, I have that with I have a few like textile working people that are yeah. friends of mine that are artists that I've met because like they weave and I embroider and we kind of like respect each other's <laughs> yeah, totally. stuff, you know? Um, there's definitely those little communities that pop up and it's, I mean, it's great. It's really fun about it. Yeah, It feels good to cross over to that when you feel like there's a new kind of community of people looking at your work that might not normally just because of that medium. Right. You kind of wish it would bleed over anyways, but I mean, animation is right. a big part of my work and but I do it in a total like self-taught it has nothing to do with like you know that world necessarily but when I put Mm -hmm. stuff out and people from motion graphics get into it it's cool that there's a whole other like world of people who are into it you know yeah yeah. and you know you get that on on, on the larger scale you get that with like craft people which is kind of I think more who I am rather than a textile person Right. Like, I just happened to have been doing a textile for the past, like, 10 years. Yeah. Um, but now that now that I have the opportunity to expand that, because I have a venue for that, and I have support from galleries and whatever, um, it's very quickly, I'm like, I want to do this, like, wood carving, and I want to do this glass, and I want to do this, like, basket weaving, and I want to do this, like, you know what I mean? It's like all the crap. Yeah. It's, it's really, I, I enjoy doing, like, crafts um and am open to many of them and it's just you know for me as an artist it becomes more of a question of like which ones do i find like conceptual 
um, like uh, content to play with and like work with as make it like art and not just a craft, you know? Yeah. So like, I mean, personally, for example, like I have woven before I have a loom, um, but I never thought of something to make as artwork with a loom. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I enjoy weaving. I can make like a table runner or like a scarf or whatever, <laughs> you know, <Right>. but <laughs> It's like it's not conceptual. It's not artwork for me. Like I don't have an. I, I don't have. Yeah, I don't. I haven't found a way to make it like turn it into artwork, visual art, and not just yeah. like a craft, which is fine. Like some craft. Same as like crocheting. Like I've been crocheting since I was, I don't know, maybe my late teens, early twenties, whatever. But I just make like pillows for fun or like baby blankets for friends that like are having a baby. Like. And that's yeah. fine. It doesn't have to be art. It's just like, I still, you know, um, but I am currently doing lots of research, meaning like YouTube deep dives <laughs> into a few <laughs> different crafts that I'm thinking about. Um, and I'm thinking that I'm finding some um, meat on the bones to work with in terms of conceptualness and, yeah. you know, relating to my practice as an artist. So there will be more crafts but for now it's it's glass that i'm focused on well um, when did you i mean i'm always embroidering like don't get me wrong i'm always working on embroidery as well so like yeah. i'll be in the glass studio for eight hours and then come home and like embroider till bed um yeah. but just adding more anyway sorry what were you gonna say oh i was just gonna say when did you start with embroidery like when did that and, and specifically kind of when the moment of that merging of something that you just like to do with your hands merging with your sort of creative drive or like expression of, of sort of I, ideas well I had never made art before I made art with embroidery so that was the same time which was yeah. it wasn't 10 years ago it was like okay it was like 9 years ago <laughs> but um, but yeah and that was I, I was living in Berlin very cliche um, and I was working in art galleries and uh, I had never, I didn't study art or art history or anything. And so my knowledge of art history and art is just from having worked in contemporary galleries in Berlin for like six years. And at a certain point, um, I don't know, I just started making art. <laughs> but I think it, for me, it coincided with... Um, like meeting my husband, who would become my husband, and he's Israeli, and I'm like of Palestinian descent, and I think that there was, um, I started traveling with him to Israel, which was the first time I had been to Israel to visit. I had all I'd been to Palestine as a teenager, but never gone to Israel to like visit Israel and spend time there. Um, yeah. It was just we would pass through Israel to go to Palestine um, before that, and so I think that there was in a in a in a way it was like. I wanted to connect with my Palestinian heritage more or like explore my relationship to Palestine. Now that I'm going to Israel, I, it felt like I needed to like solidify my relationship in a way or like just like kind of process my identity as it relates to Palestine and whatever. And so that, so that was like an urge that I had. And then given the craft leanings in general in my life where I was already 
crocheting and this and that. Um, in thinking of, I don't know, it just dawned on me to like try out this Palestinian embroidery, which is so emblematic of Palestinian culture and like is in every Palestinian household and most like Arab households, I would say, especially like outside of the Middle East. But um, so it's it was just a very obvious like visual cue that like is Palestine in a way is Palestinian yeah. culture and seemed up my alley because it was textile stuff that I like doing and and it was also actually one thing that I think I often forget to mention is that it's very accessible it's like you just get a needle and thread and some fabric like it's not you don't have to learn like I've never painted or anything in my life but like you know you have to learn how to like use paint like especially oil like turpentine like all this it's like a whole thing yeah that is you you know you have to buy all this all these materials and you have to like be taught or learn how to treat the brushes and use them with the, the yeah you know, I don't know like it's just it's very it's a little it takes a little more investment I think um, in materials whereas you can embroider for nothing it doesn't co- it barely co- it costs like under ten dollars for everything you need you know yeah and then it's like and you can make whatever like, the real thing that it takes to make things with embroidery is time so like and that doesn't cost you I mean it, it in, a, in a sense is it's valuable your time but it's not <laughs> about budgeting you know right right um, and so and with embroidery it's like you can make things and you don't have to finish meaning like I present my embroideries as paintings where I stretch them on a canvas and I frame them so there is some production cost in that side of it but for the first few years as an artist you don't have to stretch them you can just hang them on the wall or like plan on stretching them when you have a reason to but you can keep making stuff without it having those costs yeah. um, and I think that that was a big element as well is like I can just like experiment with this without it's very low stakes to experiment with embroidery you know right right um, and so I think that that's what I mean that's what I love about I mean that's you know a lot of crafts are like that actually like crafts are not made of I mean there are obviously crafts like jewelry making and stuff that is made of precious materials uh, and even certain you know woodworking or metalworking where you need the facilities to do that so you need glass the making. tools and whatever glass as well yeah glass you so need complicated. the facility you need the <laughs> yeah. facility you ceramics. need the materials ceramics all that stuff so there's those crafts that require more but then there's like I mean I've been looking into like basket weaving and stuff for example as well which is like you can go collect what you need outside yeah. <laughs> you know and yeah, like yeah. if you learn how to like treat them which is like boil them for a while or like whatever like you can uh, yeah it's like free or very cheap materials you know right. so a lot of crafts are very cheap materials um, and I think that that you know gives them an accessibility that uh, not every art medium has, you know. I think painting is relatively accessible. You could, meaning, you could get cheap like watercolor if you like really want to paint. You can paint for cheap, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And same with like drawing and that kind of stuff. But well, collage is, you know, historically right. an almost free medium. It's just find stuff and cut right, it out and right, glue right. it. I have so, colleagues who are working where I teach who are working on sustainable studio where they're using 
dyes of flowers and different, you know, natural materials to create pigments to make work right. with, which is pretty cool. That's so. cool. The only concern I have with that, and it's because I've been thinking about it with uh, basket stuff, but like natural dyes are not as archival. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so, or, or like are not archival. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where like the contemporary art world and craft meet where you're like, I could do this in a very traditional way and do natural dyes and collect natural materials myself. But like, what does that look like in a hundred years or like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, what is that gonna, you know, how, like, how is that gonna keep? Um, And so I've also been toying with like, what if I got like a synthetic basket fill so like not not what you see but what's inside that you wrap the reeds around yeah you can use other reeds or you can use these synthetic fills that i'm thinking won't it won't it won't i'm i'm in the process of like just think i'm not like making baskets right now but i'm just thinking about like if i were to like what would it look like and part of it is what do you want? Like, do you want? Do you need it to be traditionally made? Is that important to the conceptual nature of the work? If so, then great. But if that's not important, would it maybe be wise to use synthetic materials that are not going to degrade and that yeah. are not, you know, that are color fast and that are, you know, so it's just this trade off where you have to decide what's right for what you're trying to do, and um, and in terms of like whether it adds to the 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 aim of what you're trying to do with this work or whether it doesn't matter to that and it doesn't affect it either way or you know and I mean I've for an example of that is like with embroideries um I know some artists like don't do commissions because they just feel like they want to make what they make and like that's it but for me it's always been like my golden rule has always been like if it doesn't ruin the the goal of the work then why not you know what i mean it's kind of like so there's like a you can decide case by case does this still give me the opportunity to like make what i want to make just but like that's like if a client if if a if a collector was like i want it i want a piece that's blue like most you know like a blue generally like different colors but like blue piece it's like maybe I wasn't planning on making a blue piece, but like I could and it still do a landscape and still do like my thing within the range of like blues. And so like that doesn't hinder <laughs> what I do. So I yeah. wouldn't be opposed to that, you know? Um, right. But um, yeah, so that, and that goes for material selection as well. It's like, if my work was about you know, indigenous Palestinian culture, maybe I would um, feel like it was really important for me to go spend time there and learn how to forage for the basket weaving materials and learn how it had been done traditionally and all that stuff. And maybe it is, but but for me, I mean, lately my work has been more about being a member of the diaspora and with that, looks like and what that um like what how that affects 
like me as a Palestinian's understanding of what Palestinian culture is right. and misunderstanding it a lot of the time and not getting it right and not being native to that and realizing that that's a kind of cost of diaspora. It's not that I'm not like, it's not my fault that I'm not a, a native speaker of Palestinian Arabic or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, like, totally. so my work's been more about that approach lately. And so in a way using like non-traditional materials is almost more fitting for me because it's like understanding, like I, un, like, like basically for members of the diaspora, I've been thinking a lot about lately for members of the diaspora. I feel like our culture, our understanding of, what it means to be Palestinian is boiled down to like objects that we have that are exported from there that we have passed down. So like an embroidered pillow or a dress or like a, a, you know, a carved olive wood, like figurine or something like that becomes Palestine for us and Palestinian culture. Whereas in Palestine that those are just like things around that are, you know, part of a larger Palestinian culture of way of life. Right. right. Um, but for diaspora people, um, oftentimes it just gets boiled down to those objects and it becomes a kind of very superficial understanding of that culture, but it's, we don't have, that's all we have. Like we don't have an option to like live in a more Palestinian way living in New York. Like there's not the same produce here. There's not the same, you know, communities that like do certain, um, have a certain way of life and, you know, interact in a specific cultural way and whatever. So, um, and so my work more and more, I'm thinking about it as like this expression of like how a diaspora, a person in the diaspora, like sees that culture that they're raised very much to like worship in a sense and like totally idealize and like, um, imagine as like the realist and most uh like cherished (laughs) thing but at the same time like we don't understand it and I think that you know as my work has gotten more out there I feel like I have gotten criticized at times for like not representing the Palestinian people in the real way and not understanding. And I'm like, wait, but that's, yeah. <laughs> like that's because it's I'm, way. I'm it's from, your no, but, but it's not even that. It's like, it's more like, well, yeah, this is what it is to be a part of the diaspora. How am I supposed to understand this, you know, granular thing about growing up in the West Bank or in Gaza when like that, I don't know that. And it's not my fault that I don't know that it's actually the cost of like my ancestors having left there. that I'm paying, you know, so it's like, it's funny to see like people criticizing me for the same things I'm trying to address in my work, which is that I don't represent Palestine. (laughs) Like, you know, like I'm, I'm a New Yorker, um, and I'm Palestinian American, but that's different than, you know, I don't describe myself as like a Palestinian artist because that implies to me is like an artist from Palestine, (laughs) you know? Right. Um, And yeah, so I mean, so my exploration of these crafts as well is a similar thing where it's like, I like gravitate towards them because I associate them with our culture in Palestine, right? But that's like as far as it goes. For American Palestinians, I feel like for many of us who are not in, 
you know, we're ma- like, I'm half Palestinian and all my cousins are half Palestinian, you know? So we're, we're not like in an Arab neighborhood where everyone's speaking Arabic and we're a hundred percent Arab and we, you know what I mean? Like we're not in, those communities do exist here, but I'm like second generation. So we're diluted, if you will. And so our understanding is very, it's like tokens of this culture rather than um, really living in that culture. And so my work, I feel like is fittingly that it's like the embroidery is a symbol of this culture. And so I do that embroidery as a way to connect and it exposes to me all the ways that that is like lacking. But at the same time, I think is a beautiful like tribute to like how much we people in my position yearn to connect with the real people and place and culture. Um, and so I don't know, as I said, I just feel like it's ironic to be criticized for that when like literally that work, the work is all about that, that dissonance and that like yearning and struggling to connect and not, and to be accepted in a sense. Um, and it's funny how that doesn't yeah. happen in music so much. Like, if you think about, you know, African-Americans and the kind of music that um, relates back to African percussion or things from... Mm-hmm. You would never... Or, I don't know, maybe I'm a, unaware of it, but you wouldn't think that people in Africa are like, well, that's kind of not real African music. Right. I mean, if I anything, think it, it happens. It comes, yeah, but I think it, it comes back as an influence. Right. If you look like Fela Kuti, right. I mean, he was influenced right. by James Brown. You know, so right. it's kind of like right. a celebration of how things right. change in different cultures and different I mean, that's the other thing is that it's nothing is in a vacuum, including like, you know, my work, um, for me personally, as I described, like has this function of in my mind, connecting me with Palestine and doing something Palestinian. But then women who do this embroidery in Palestine see my work and appreciate it. And, um, you know, some of the women that I work with, because I do these collaborative pieces with them, uh, you know, they feel, they become influenced by color choices that I had made in my works and stuff like that. And like, ironically, it's like the work is about how I don't, like, I'm not from there and I don't fit in. And I'm, it's all about this, like, um, you know, idealization and of this place that is kind of mythological at a, at a point. Um, but at the same time, it has brought me to like real interaction and relationships with people there and has made me in a sense, a part of their embroidering community, you know? So it's kind of like, you know, it's doing that. So, so on the one hand, it's a way for me to like process these things. And on the other hand, it's actually doing what I wanted, which is like bringing me to Palestine (laughs) and bringing me into connecting with roots. Yeah. So it's interesting when in thinking about too I mean as you as mixing or generations sort of happen that distance becomes further and the culture that you're within becomes more ingrained in the daily life like in the community I'm in there's a large Italian American community and I have friends who are Italian you know and they come and they're like oh my god that's so different but they're so waving the flag and like super Italian but it's such a different kind of Italian culture than what we have or like when people mix, like myself, like I'm so mixed that I have no cultural like connection. Like I don't right. like, it's a lot of European stuff and little Native American. It's like a mix of all this stuff. And I have no 
cultural relationship. So I'm just American. You know what I mean? It's right. almost like I've separated so far from it that I don't even yearn to like think like, oh, if I could connect to this or that. You know what I mean? It's, right, it's right, an right. interesting. Well, and it's almost like the closer you are to the separation of the culture and generations and stuff is the more that desire is to sort of or the pool seems to be to be right because you're half i mean i'm half uh, i'm half palestinian and half polish so both of those things are like a large (laughs) portion of my you know background it's i don't have like 20 i'm like five percent this ten percent like it doesn't like that's not you know that then it would be like how do you choose one to decide to be attached to you know right um but yeah well I have Japanese friends who are like third or fourth generation and they don't you know they don't speak any I speak more Japanese than they do and they don't connect with that at all and part of that is being in the west coast during you know World War II and and parents not wanting their kids to to even speak so it's not necessarily just the genetic makeup and like the generation things it's also just a distance from the culture in a way right but I would posit that like if you are like largely from one like background, it's a diff. It's because you know I think that in a position like you, like you're you described for yourself, where you're very mixed, it's more like what would I attach to exactly? You know, <laughs> whereas but but if someone is like a hundred percent Japanese American, but they're like fourth generation, so they don't have they don't speak the language, they're not connected to it. But at the same time, they you can't not they they know their heritage, like you know what I right. mean. Like it's like where a, you, so it's, it's a different like a, situation. Uh, genetic test or something. It's no, like but I, I can't I, deny that I'm from that. Place. Right, like it's a different situation than someone like you. Like there there are different ways to arrive at like just considering yourself American. Right, um, and one of them involves like. And they're allowed to do that. Like you don't have to. You don't have to like go back to the culture of your ancestry if you don't want to, or whatever. But like. You know you're Japanese American if you're like 100 percent Japanese American. You know right. what I mean? There's that. Yeah, yeah. You 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 are like so mixed that like if you had to describe yourself with one descriptor, it would have to be American because there's not enough of one like larger background chunk that you can you know right um, identify with. Yeah. So, are, yeah, but I, are you, the big question is: Are you 100 percent New Yorker? For sure. <laughs> but it's you know, and that's the whole thing. I mean, I mean quickly it's like it's it's more like for me a big part of like why i feel this way about palestine is because of that's how i was raised like my father really ingrained in us that we're palestinian even though you know we're half um but he was very he's 100 percent, and he was very attached to that and he's very passionate about the palestinian cause and um freedom for palestinians and so he yeah he made sure that we were like very proud to be palestinian and we were like just you know, identify as Palestinian. So that, you know, that's, that's just my case, you know, not everyone has that kind of influence. Um, but that being said, my original ancestors that came to America were, it was like a hundred years ago and it was to New York. So we are like real New Yorker, like, you know, (laughs) they first settled in, um, this community called little Syria that, was like kind of Wall Street-ish like down there down financial district area and that I learned recently was just cleared out to make way for the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel Um, but had been there since the late 1800s until like the 1920s or so 
And then, so my, so I had family that was there at that time. And then there was a kind of migration to Brooklyn, to what was called the South Street Settlement um, in the early 1900s. And that became like the Atlantic Avenue kind of strip of Arab, Arab stores and stuff. And so I also had family in that area. Um, so really like the history of Arabs in New York, like my family has been here that whole like time with the first yeah. wave and um so yeah in a lot of in a lot of ways it's like we're very new yorkers uh and similarly like my i have two brothers and i'm the only one who goes and like since i was a little kid like i was the only one of the brothers who asked for arabic lessons so like when i was 10 years old i like learned how to read and write and stuff mm-hmm. um and we, we had been spoken to in Arabic when we were really little by my grandparents. So the, it was, there was a familiarity I felt like for me. Um, and then, as I said, by the time I was like 10, I wanted to learn. So I got a tutor and didn't really become like conversational at that age, but learned how to read and write at that age, which I think was very like pivotal. Yeah. Um, but my two brothers like never had that interest. I'm like, don't. you know so it's like it's really it's not even a family thing it's just like a personality thing within the family like I very much am like my father in that sense where I I, it's important to me to connect to Palestine and like to go there and to speak language and to like I don't know like how exist there right um and yeah so but yeah the the one thing we do all have in common is that we're New Yorkers (laughs) (laughs) well it's a very specific um I mean I wasn't born and raised in New York but my son is and and I can just tell that it's just a very specific way of growing up it's so different than so many other places it also depends on where you're growing up in New York cause like I grew up uh uptown in Manhattan and like we didn't go downtown like we didn't you know we didn't leave like a maybe 30 block like north and south section of the city yeah and until i was a teenager like you it, it is more sheltered in some ways than people imagine you know you're not like a three-year-old going everywhere you know right, like you, right. you you go to the park nearest your house every day yeah. <laughs> you know that's yeah, about yeah. it you know and then your school, like I went to public school and school was in the neighborhood and like you just don't, you know, it was really like, I remember like being in, in high school and like with my girlfriends from, that I had known from when I was younger, like once a month on a Saturday, like going to the village and like, <laughs> do you know what I mean though? Yeah, like yeah. the village was like an excursion that wasn't like, oh, I grew up in New York City, like everywhere, you know, right. it's like, it's very, and when I went to college outside the city the couple of new yorkers that i became friends with like one of them was like a downtown girl who like never went above 23rd street in her life before right. you know like where yeah, i yeah. was uptown and i never went down there like so it's like it is not like you're growing up in like the middle of the, the center of the universe it's like your neighborhood is quite small it, it gets you don't leave and it becomes yeah. more I feel like a normal way to grow up in a lot of ways. Like you just have your community and your normal places you go. And like, it's very appropriate for a little kid, you know? Yeah. But the beauty is, is you are exposed or you see other stuff. It's no, not for just sure. like, you know, 
the suburbs yeah. and where it's like you don't no need and the and the different. diversity for sure yeah. is like you can't you don't find anywhere else you know um, where yeah it's just like everyone because you know and that's part of I think the reason that I identify this way with Palestine also is that growing up like every one of my friends was like half this half that and like knew that culture in the same way that I know Palestinian culture yeah. um, or to different degrees um, and so it was like the most normal thing to like know where your grandparents were from and share that with people you know it wasn't like um, I feel like for people in much less diverse like towns or cities it's like a very different story to be like the only Arab kid on the block or like right. the only like Jewish kid in the town or like whatever like that is very different than in New York where like everyone has some they're like oh well like I'm half this and half that like you can go around the room and like everyone like so many people have these mixes that um, are just like embraced and normal and yeah. <clears throat> like I remember one of my best friends was half Indian and it would like the same kind of thing like we at my house we'd have like there'd always be like a little bit of a Middle Eastern undertone of the food or like whatever whereas for him it was always like Indian undertone but it was the same thing and yeah. they had like certain like blankets and stuff that had been from brought back right. and like we had stuff like that like the Palestinian embroidered pillows like it's you know but it's like the same amount of like it's very American to have that like these little I mean and I guess it's like fair enough like there's also a European people have that too in America like you know they had their thing from like Ireland or like whatever that their family brought you know yeah. um, so everyone really ha can have that here and it's, I feel like in New York it's just there's no uh, there's no urge to like homogenize right which I feel like there is maybe in a lot of suburbs and like smaller towns um, yeah, like the the one Palestinian kid in the suburbs where there's no like with little diversity. If any kid goes over to that kid's house, they're going to be like, "Oh, this is weird." Like, right? I went over to his house and they did this this way. You know, where right. I feel like in uh, a diverse atmosphere, people are like, "Oh, this was really cool." Like, I'm going to go get some Indian food, or like, I want right. to check out that like that or just style. Like, again, as a little kid, knowing that like you see some weird things that this kid's house but then you see like other weird things that this like everyone has yeah. their like different things you know it's not just the one family on the block you know right i think um, it's utopic personally no, i think it's, it's I, I would not raise kids anywhere else honestly um, i know but it's funny because we always this is the thing that i it, it's kind of like this you know good and bad thing like culture is beautiful like the culture of people that has been together for thousands of years there's a real beauty to those traditions and that culture. But it's also when things get homogenized like that, it can cause sort of, you know, xenophobia or, you know, um, this is better than something right. else. And I feel like there's something really great about when everything sort of mixes and kind of gets, like it's not a big deal, otherness in a way. Yeah. That's, I mean, you still celebrate it and still celebrate the culture and what's beautiful about it, but it's also kind of, there's an openness and it's not just... Right. One way, yeah. I, I think that it, you know, to a certain extent, because if you keep, <laughs> if it's like, if everyone in a, in a funny way, it's like if any if everyone ends up in a in like how you describe yourself, where like you don't really have any 
attachment to any like historical culture of your family because yeah. you're just like so mixed I feel like that is um, if everyone was like that it would be a shame <laughs> you know what I mean right. just because yeah. it's like you do want people to know the specific more detailed traditions of different things and like keep passing those down um, which is why again I like I loved growing up in New York because everyone has those cultures and they like share them with each other and so you're exposed to them but like you have yours and your neighbor has theirs and like so the whole community has like lots of them you know it requires people to still be individual yeah um and uh yeah but i don't know i just i just also think just uh literally just the diversity walking down the street i think is important for like kids to see and stuff like that and in school like where like in my high school, like, straight up, English as an only language American was, like, the minority. Minority, in high yeah, totally. You know, yeah. like, and it's not just about, like, physical, like, different skin tones. It's, like, Albanians and Polish people and Russian people and this and that, you know, like, like within yeah. the, what would you describe as, like, the white population of the school was actually, like, all immigrants from all over the place, you know? Right. So it's like, and that was, that's a normal public school in the city. And so it's like, you know, not to mention all the, you know, people from everywhere in the world. But like, um, like I like literally learned how to like write my name in like Gujarati from a friend in high school. And then like this other friend was from Bangladesh and then one moved from Poland and one was, you know what I mean? It's like, that's normal. That's where I want kids to grow up. You know what I totally, mean? Totally. Like, yeah. I mean, that's um, one of the reasons I'm still here. Yeah, and it, <laughs> Sometimes nothing drives I me crazier. Go. Nothing drives me crazier than people moving to New York in, like, their teens or 20s, like, before or after college, and, like, killing themselves to survive here. Yeah. And then the minute they have kids, they're, like, moving back home to the <laughs> suburbs. It's like, why did you right. work so hard to survive here? And, you know, I understand people, like... I think in a lot of ways people, like, envision raising the kids the way that they were raised so if you had a like a backyard and a swing set like yeah, you want yeah. your kids to have that right, I right. get it I get it in theory but it's like your kid will be so have so many advantages from growing up in New York just literally like mentally from like the exposure to like a diverse range of everything Yeah, but, like why would you throw that and you've made it here you know you live here you're surviving right. here why would you be like, okay, I'm just going to go back to, like, outside Boston now. Like, it's like, what, it just, to me, it drives me crazy. I'm just like, what, it, that's just crazy. Um, yeah, but you don't find the city exhausting because you're native to it, but people who grow up in a more kind of slower lane and they get in onto the highway, sometimes right. it guess. can be a little much. I mean, the city can wipe you out if you're not up for it, you know. I, I mean, I've been here over 20 years and I feel like I've adapted to it, but it wasn't my, like, I definitely became a New Yorker. Like, I wasn't born this way. But, but, but like, what, but, like, also that's the thing is that, like, what, what better than to give your kids, like, a better, um, like, a better scenario than you had? You know what I mean? Yeah. And what that means is, like, also, like, because I am able, you know, especially if you, like, especially if your family is not here and your family is in the country somewhere or whatever, then your kids will be exposed to all of it. Like, they'll they'll learn how to, like, play in nature and, like, be outside. But then they also are able to function in a city like this. And 
you know, on top of that are not like small minded, whatever. You know what yeah, I mean? They're totally. just exposed more. I just don't, I just think it's a waste of all the effort of being like struggling in your 20s to live here if you're like, yeah. okay, bye. Um, well, since and, COVID, there's been like a lot of people splitting. And it's yeah. not just because. No, well, but this is, that's yeah. different. That's yeah. like, if you lose your job, your income, this, that, like, there's no, it's not judging that. Oh, yeah, Jesus. totally. Yeah, no, no, I'm just I'm, saying I'm it's more, interesting as a phenomenon yeah. of like right. all these city people now starting to go out into the upstates and now in, the, right. you know, in the different places. I mean, I wanted to do that too in a lot of ways just because it's like less densely populated and right. so it's like Space. less stressful, you know? Yeah. Um, that I don't think that has to do, that has far more to do with pandemic than like New York. Definitely. Um, but I mean, for for us, it's like even doing that though is like kind of impossible because me and my husband's our studios are both here. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like it's too much. We just can't move everything. He's like, right? It's, it's just like we just got to stick it out, which is fine. God, but, moving is exhausting, isn't it? It's such a um, it's a big thing. Yeah, I mean, especially as I said, like having built out these like very customized studios with everything we need and like yeah. whatever it's like i'm not i'm not leaving that like, <laughs> i'm not going anywhere right um but yeah i don't know i at the same time i like i mean it's funny because i love new york but it's like i don't like passionately love new york i just like like i i lived in japan for a few years i lived in uh berlin for a few years like I'm like happy to not be here. It's like fine. Like I, the world is a big place, and I want to go <laughs> to different places. And yeah, and I really love living places, even for not that. You know, I don't really call it living if it's like for a few months. But like, right? You know, even that. Like, I think it's really great to get to know a place by like having a daily life there, a little bit beyond like a visit. Um, yeah. And I'm not attached to living in New York. Like, I'm not insisting on living here. It's actually my husband, who's not from here, who's, like, waited his whole life to live here. So he's like, we're living here. Um, (laughs) And it's fine. Like, my relationship with New York is, like, I'm always happy to live here. I can exist here fine. It's, like, my baseline. Like, I'm always... Yeah, it's a default. (laughs) You know, it's my default. So I'm happy to be here, but I'm not, like passionately like never gonna leave new york like it's not about that for me but i think it's because i have the luxury of being from here so it's like it's i it's this sense of like it's always gonna be here i'll always have a place here like that thing right that comes with being from here um but like i would totally like i would i yeah there's like a list of places i would totally want to live for a while but not right now and it is nice to have like be a little more grounded and have the studio and have like yeah a little bit yeah. more of a gr- grown up life and getting up there now in, in age <laughs> yeah. I'm a grown up now what, what years were you in Berlin? I was in Berlin 2008 to 2013 okay or like and that through. was that was kind of especially at the beginning of that time frame it was really kicking there like there was a lot going on yeah I got there in the tail end of it's the cheap still being things. like so yeah. cheap yeah, yeah and so on and so forth and that was kind of wise i actually didn't plan on moving to berlin i'd never been to germany and i graduated from college 
and went on a like I had you know I had been living in Japan for a few years during college and so I hadn't been to Europe for a while and a few friends after graduation wanted to do like a one of them their family has like a house in the Alps in Italy and so we like went on a celebratory postgraduate trip together and while I was in Europe I went to Paris which I had been before but like visited some friends there and then I went and visited some um, friends in Berlin and you know I literally just graduated from school like weeks before and it was not in New York so I didn't have like an apartment in New York or whatever and didn't have a job didn't have anything and so when I got to Berlin and I was like wait rent is like two hundred dollars like what are you talking about <laughs> yeah. uh i was just like honestly Sold. this seems like the most likely place i'll be able to support myself yeah. <laughs> as like a newly graduated you know the other option being like move in with my parents right. in new york um and by very lucky sequence of events managed to get a visa to stay uh in berlin and accidentally moved there by and it was literally like I had nothing with me I had like a suitcase for traveling yeah and that was I didn't come home for 10 months um instead of like two weeks um and then came home just for like I think like the holidays and then brought more stuff back to Germany you know so it was a totally accidental thing I didn't I hadn't been to Germany didn't speak German at the time uh and ended up obviously like you know it's it's like i I, you could say i I was about to be like a change my life but like actually whatever you're doing from when you're 26 to like 28 22 to 28 is like changing your life you know you're becoming (laughs) you're becoming like the grown-up that you're gonna be you know um so i just did that period in berlin yeah um and then kind of got tired of it and my husband was about to graduate from art school in Germany um, which is what he was doing there and we were just like let's get out of here after you graduate Um, and he you know I feel like a lot of people in the world he like always wanted to live in New York you know yeah Um, so New York it was Um, what well, um, one thing I'd, we didn't touch on, but I'm curious about is your, are you a music fan? Are you interested in music? I am. Actually, more than that, I feel like music is, like, central to everything. Um, not, it doesn't show up in my work as an artist, but is, like, in, like, I literally, like, I listen to music, like, 20 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, I at this point... I mostly listen to Arab music, mm-hmm. um, but I, I mean, I grew up playing classical piano, so I do love classical music, especially piano music. Um, I ran like the radio station in college, and was at that point was very like indie, blah blah. Um, music, quote unquote. Yeah, but it was yeah. like a very specific, like early two thousands, like you know what I'm talking about. Um, post, like post-rock stuff? Like college radio in the okay. year 2003. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Like, it was like, I don't know. I mean, my, my taste was always a little bit on the side of like, 
I mean, I guess like when I was really young, like, well, okay, here's my musical life story. I was raised on the Grateful Dead. Okay. Like in the car, (laughs) in the car when I was like a four year old and I would sing along, you know, that was like Grateful Dead because it was what my dad listened to and my big brother and like whatever. Middle school, I was like alternative, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning like, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, whatever. But I was, as a, like, pre-gay, closeted young lad, um, I loved, like, I loved, like, Hole and the Cranberry. Like, girls. I loved girls. I loved Garbage, Hole, Cranberries. Uh, Like, that was more me. Um, Fiona Apple. um, The Breeders? No. Very specifically. I mean, it's... it's, No, no, no. It's just, like, it literally is, like, by chance I got into certain things, right? Okay, got it. Uh, Because I was also into, like, Erica Badu and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think, like, the most defining of the time would have been, like, Cranberries and Hole for me and Garbage. But then, like... And Fiona Apple before bed. Um, That, like, her first album, like, title, you know? Like, I'm talking like I'm in seventh grade. Uh, (laughs) And then in college it was, like, college stuff right it was like uh discovering slightly earlier like queer stuff like la tigra and stuff like that you know um and i was really into like i was into like i was a little extreme i was like into like lesbians and ecstasy and uh (laughs) like whatever like crazy like electro clashy post whatever i don't know all the terminology um and and then it was like a time when it was like you know we ran the radio station and we had our own budget for like musical guests so we had like kind of amazing bands we had like animal collective and andrew bird and like enon and like just all these random you know bands of that moment coming through vermont because i went to middlebury in vermont right right and we but middlebury is on the road between up to montreal so a lot of bands actually would not be would be passing through conveniently and we could like reach out to them if they had a show coming up in Montreal and be like, Come stop to here. It. Yeah, like a couple days before, do a concert in Middlebury. Anyway, so that was really fun. But you know, so music, so it was definitely always a part of all that of my life. And uh, I mean, also, I think just growing up in New York, I don't know. I always, I mean, I also did always listen to like, um, like hip hop and R&B a lot as well. And like, yeah. I just remember, what, you know, it was, like, early 2000s, late 90s. We would go to these, like, cheesy, big, like, uh, like Z100 <laughs> concert. You know what I mean? Yeah, We're, yeah. like, 12 years old. Um, seeing, like... But it's, like... It, but it's weird, because music was different at that time, honestly. It was, like, mainstream... I really believe that, like, indie music didn't happen until a little later than that, because in those late 90s years big labels were still signing people who had like actual talent right 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 like pre-Britney they were signing Fiona Apple and Erica Badu and like these people that were like amazing singer-songwriters and they stopped that when it was like oh we want Backstreet Boys now you know yeah and so there was a time where like those Z100 concerts were really actually a mix of like trashy and amazing like right. songwriter and like well like Lollapalooza was you know? like that you know yeah. it was they had great acts on there they had some big acts but they also would have like small indie bands that were great but it was also that like the notion of indie didn't exist yet it was just like some bands were like 
singing and dancing and some were like musicians and right. they were all on Z100. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, was, yeah. It was a time where like early Britney and then, you know, whereas now that like, and then I feel like when I, in the early 2000s and late mid 2000s, it was like those bands weren't getting signed anymore because they weren't flashy like J-Lo. Yeah. So indie labels were necessary like were necessities, you know? Right. Um, and that's really where I feel like that became where you go for like quality musicians is like you want indie labels, right? And I think actually I will say in college my favorite band of all was like Deerhoof. Um, <laughs> and I think yeah. I saw like a million because that is like perfect for me. They're really musically like genius, mm-hmm. right? In terms of the like music like right. in terms of theory and like chord progressions and like crazy shit they would do and like rhythm patterns all that stuff but they're also like loud and crazy yeah. and like kind of cute and Japanese sometimes it was just like the best it was just like right. Europe was like it because it was like smart but also like fun and also like rowdy like some albums are like so loud and sometimes that's just what you want yeah um so yeah, I think Deerhoof, like, I feel like I'll I'll take on as like my number one college band. Yeah. Um, and I saw them like as many times as possible all over. Um, and we would come down to New York for CMJ like every year, um, which was a treat also. Um, oh, and, live music. Remember yeah, live music? I know. Right? Well, actually, you know, by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I'd say, I was kind of over it. Like, I al- I just started to have this sense of like whenever I would go to like a concert I would always like kind of want it to be over already and have happened and been fun but like also want it to end like now I don't right. know I just like started to like not have the patience though I feel like I did see I mean no, over those years in CMJ we saw some like iconic like we saw the rapture and like LC sounds like whatever like all those like really major we saw oh I will never forget saw Arcade Fire which I was not the hugest fan of but it was like in CMJ we would have the like ticket the open yeah, ticket the pass, we would just like yeah. show up yeah um, but the concert in Central Park I don't know what year it was they did Summer Stage in Central Park and had a random special guest and it was David Bowie so like I oh, feel wow. like that was like a very accidental like I, like epic moment where it's yeah. like okay um, no, th- th- there was many years of, like, really great live music. Um, and I was very into, like, contemporary music like that. And then I think, you know, part of my, as an artist, like, I started to li- I had listened to Arabic music since I was a little kid. My dad had a few of those tapes in the car, too. He had uh, Raghib Alama was one for sure, and Amr Diab, um which are two very famous, like, 90s, 2000s male pop stars. Um, and so I had, a, like, a, a taste for that as well, but didn't start to get back into it till, like, living in Berlin. Um, not because of Berlin, but just because of, like, wanting to be more Arab or something. Uh, <laughs> but now, and so now, like ten, like, 10 years later or whatever, I, like, I mean... I, I'm not like into music scholarship per se. I just like literally like listening to all sorts of stuff. But um, because of that, I think I do have a very wide scope, especially uh, in Arab music and a, and a lot of 
knowledge but accidentally just because I listened to a lot of it Um, and also because you know it's funny but uh, you know Arabic music across the Middle East is very regional right and people have an ear for like a certain style that's their local you know whether it's Dabki in like Lebanon and Palestine and Syria or it's Khaliji music in the Gulf or it's like uh, Rai music in like Morocco or it's like Berber music whatever like there's people have their local or not not local but like sub-regional kind of genres, genres. Yeah, yeah. and like my cousins in Palestine will be like turn this Gulf music off like they don't <laughs> like it you know right, right. but I think that one thing for me as like not being raised in Palestine in this Palestinian like true Palestinian environment is that I don't have that so I love like I literally listen to like Berber music that I don't understand but I just for me it still is like sounds of the Middle East that like I romanticize and like and uh, but then you know then as you explore you find really amazing like just like objectively awesome like really great music whatever um but uh so and I have a few friends who I like really like our relationship is like fundamentally sharing songs with each other all the time. Yeah. Um, like Arab stuff. And then, um, I don't know, like there for many years, I mean, I also, you know, in terms of contemporary music, like Western music, I really am not interested in much beyond like hip hop and R&B. Um, but that being said, I like, I, I don't know. I just have like mood sometimes. Like literally last week, I just like, was listening to like Connie Francis and Brenda Lee. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like right, stuff right. happens where you're yeah. like, oh, I want, I like this, like I'm into this, like this week. Um, it's very mood based and it's like, but because I like listen to music most of the day, it's like a lot. I don't know. There's a, there's a wide range. I get it. Um, and you know, I do listen to classical music still and I like a lot of opera and stuff like that. I don't know. Like it's, I almost, I feel like I kind of almost listen to everything except for like, I can't do like Miley Cyrus. I thought you were going to say late Britney. <laughs> uh, also I can't do late Britney. Are we in um, late Britney right now? Is that I don't really epoch? listen. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know the like major Britney moments from the earlier let's say half of her career but i don't i don't know i if there's anything i don't listen to it's like that kind of pop yeah just because like like the miley cyrus i just like don't i want i like i mean my in terms of that those kind of pop my favorite is like ariana grande i think um, not k-pop you're not in the bts no not so much no <laughs> i've never thinking about it. it i know i i'm no but i'm more <laughs> thinking like i don't even really know it like it's pretty good maybe it's yet to be discovered um but like i don't know i just like rihanna um but (laughs) as because you know i mean pop music in that sense has merged with like hip-hop and r&b so much that it's like kind of hip-hop you know yeah um but i think that since the advent of indie labels good like rock slash acoustic whatever singer songwriter stuff has always been has been on indie labels since then and good hip-hop and r&b is on made on on mainstream yeah i do not like independent hip-hop and r&b 
I like, you know what I mean? It's yeah, like the right. good stuff is like signed to the major labels, like the good producers and the good like sound, like whatever. Right. But that's not the same with like singer songwriters and rock and whatever. That's like, I don't know. Maybe country music is like that a little bit, but I am not the hugest country fan. I'm, I don't hate it. I don't like like cowboy like tractor like stuff, but I can enjoy some some contemporary country music. Um, I'm just re- regarding the classic like anything but country kind of ABC, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I'm no, not. Good I don't buy that. There is totally, and I actually kind of love bluegrass, but I think that that has to do with Grateful Dead um, childhood upbringing as well. Yeah, but um, like Flat and Scruggs is like totally. Like that kind of stuff is way different. I don't know than, what that is. Oh, like traditional bluegrass. Oh yeah, it's no, no, like no. totally like, different yeah, 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 than yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 country yeah. music. Right. No, that's what I mean. Like I think that like the the hunky pop star country like cowboy guy now. Yeah. I, that I don't like that sound. Um, but I think yeah, I like like more. I mean, but there was a moment where country music also was like overlapping with like you know, 60, 70, like, folksy stuff. Yeah. And that, that zone I love. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, that's good. Um, I hate Bob Dylan. <laughs> Just for the record. For the record. <laughs> it's also because me, like, my husband, like, loves Bob Dylan and knows oh, everything no. about everything. And I'm, I'm like, sorry. turn this off. <laughs> it's just, like, I just feel like he's just, like, mumbling nonsense with some music going on as well do you know what I mean it's like yeah, it's, yeah. I, whatever I like don't I think that's the critique of the non-Bob Dylan fans is exactly that and those it's who love like, him get out of here totally different. no I don't <laughs> like it um but there's a lot of amazing Arab music there's so many there's something for everyone there's yeah. so it's like calling it Arab music is like calling calling the other western music it's like American, what the hell American does that music? mean yeah it's like what does that mean it's so much you know um and i've been actually doing uh a friend of mine has a cassette tape like bootleg cassette label yeah where she makes mixes but also has friends and artists and whatever like make our own that she publishes and it's literally mixtapes it's like totally bootleg unlicensed like use of these songs but it's like you know her reach is very niche it's like she makes 50 copies of this tape it's not she's not going to be sued but um but i she asked me a few years ago to make an arabic music tape and i was like that's nonsense i need to make like a bunch of them that are different genres and so i've made i feel like i've made like eight or nine or ten of them with her um that are kind of like the idea is like because her audience is like kids in New York and LA uh, my approach has been like introductions to different genres of Arabic music yeah. um, and you get to make like the the J-card design and the tape sticker design all the stuff so it's like fun visual um, but yeah so that's been my involvement in like something musical <laughs> right, uh, totally. and um i like to dj in the deciding what everyone listens to at any moment but i right. don't actually like know how to dj um 
but that doesn't mean I don't do it sometimes and it's fun. <laughs> uh, like I have two friends that I've DJed with a few times who are both, one of them's from Morocco, one of them's from the Emirates. And we do a lot of like mix in Arabic music with like other fun songs, like whatever. And we do, we do parties sometimes. Nice. Um, but really bad, like no, there's no mixing. It's like a playlist, <laughs> like a, just auto auto fade right, right. <laughs> like so you know <laughs> you're not matching beats uh, no we're not doing that no <laughs> um but yeah no music is a big is a big part of my life yeah well um, what do you what do you have coming up as far as like art stuff art do you want to tell ha- people today about today is the last yeah. day uh so that doesn't matter for people listening because it will have ended right but uh uh, my show in la at not ebby gallery is ending today Mm -hmm. but there's lots of beautiful pictures online so you can always see it in perpetuity um and then i have a show up in new york right now through november 21st at james cohan gallery on grand street um in like chinatown zone and next month I'm going to Kentucky which I'm a little nervous about COVID wise <laughs> I'm nervous COVID wise and I'm right, also right. nervous because I'm going like two weeks after the election and so I'm like is there gonna be like a civil war like I don't know um, but anyway I'm going to Kentucky I have a show at KMAC which is Kentucky Museum of Arts and Crafts and that show's opening in early December nice and we'll be up through like April so that's gonna be up for a while um where else can you see my work right now there's a show and there's a group exhibition at the Phi Foundation PHI in Montreal Mm -hmm. that's up for a while there's the Asia Society uh in New York City is opening their first triennial I think like yesterday it opens um and that's gonna be up for like a month a number of months Open um, to the public, right? Open to the public. You just yeah. have to make an appointment for free on their website just to stagger the numbers of people. Oh, but is that also, is the show at James Cohen, is that also appointment-based? Yeah, all of them are open to the public. Uh, the galleries would love you to make an appointment, but you don't have to. Don't right, have to turn it's a little more loose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Asian Society Triennial is opening now. I have a few pieces in that. And also the Whitney Museum has, um, I have a piece in the Craft in Art show that has mm-hmm. been open for a year, pretty much, and just got extended through like 2022, yes. through the early 2022, because the right. months lost during COVID, they yeah, just like yeah. extended everything. So there's a piece hanging in the Whitney, um, which I feel like is convenient. I feel like people go there. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a bunch of pieces all around um, for you to see of my embroidery. Um, and there's the glass pieces are also in the James Cohan show in, yeah. um, on Grand Street. So Cool. Yeah. And then you do social media. Like people can see your stuff online. Oh, yes. I apologize for my Instagram. No, my Instagram <laughs> is pretty, you know, it's pretty like, uh, what's the, what's the, what's the st- the phrase it's like a lady on the feed and a freak in the story or something <laughs> that's like uh, that's me like my Got my it. like my posts are very business very like artwork and then 
I'm a fool in the stories. There will be, there's ballet dancing sometimes. There's uh, all sorts of antics. And also it's, like, and also process stuff. Like I was, I made some stories of like the glass studio yesterday, like seeing how I'm making the beats and stuff, which I feel like is cool. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thanks for taking all this time. It was great oh, to, no, my to talk to you. And uh, I'm excited to see, to see the show in person, which will be great. Oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with it. Um, please do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you.